Mountain Pass, a podcast about lifelong learning, curiosity, and our wonderful brain. Topics we love at Alp Audio. But this isn't a podcast about Alp the product. Rather, it's conversations driven by our curiosity. Today I'm talking to Atin Batra, the managing partner and solo GP of 27 Ventures, an early-stage venture capital fund focused on edtech and the future of work. I want to talk to Atin to hear about his journey into the venture capital world. Venture capital is a very interesting profession because you also have to learn topics quickly, but in such a way that you get to know what you don't know and what the right questions to ask are. I also wanted to hear about his framework for being a solo GP investor versus the standard partnership model, where he thinks it benefits and where he thinks it doesn't. Enjoy. Atin, welcome to the Mountain Pass. It's great to have you. Thanks, Yarf. Glad to be here. Perfect. So before we dive into everything that we wanted to chat about, let's first start with your background. Um, how did you get into venture capital? How did you get involved in this financing world, this edtech financing world that you find yourself in? Let's just hear a little bit about your own journey. Sure. Um, well, I mean, from a background perspective, I've uh, I was actually born, brought up in India. Um, I moved to Hong Kong about seven years ago. This is home for me now. Um, I've been here ever since. Um, I used to be an entrepreneur at one point. Actually, I used to work for a corporate at one point. Then I became an entrepreneur. Then I went back to work for a corporate uh, and realized that I still hated it. <laughs> um, so I sort of wanted to stick to the to the to the world of entrepreneurship uh, and technology, and so that's when I made my move into the investing side of things, and I've been an investor for a little over six years now. Uh, different roles: I've been the head of a corporate accelerator, I've been an associate and a principal at a VC firm, uh, and of course now I run my own VC firm, which I founded a little over a year and a half ago, back in 2019. Um, so that's that's my day job. Uh, you did ask why venture capital, um, and I think the simplest answer is for the adventure, right? Um, there are three things I always uh, I know I've said this to you before, but there are usually three things that people need to know about me personally, and those three things are one I'm very curious, so I'm always trying new experiences. I'm trying to learn new skills. At the age of 31, I bought a drum set for myself thinking I could become a drummer now. So it's like I have this <laughs> this stupid um, set of ideals that one should never stop learning. So I'm just very, very curious. Um, the second thing you need to know about me is I have a bias for action. I just, you know, I was one of those kids that just could not sit still. It just could not sit still. Unless I'm reading a book, which is probably the only time when I can sit still for hours on end. But otherwise, like, I just cannot. I've always got want to be doing some doing something. So I've been, you know, building stuff from scratch like since I was a kid. And then the third thing, and and the third thing about me, and and this sort of, um, it leads on from the first two, which is curiosity and a bias for action, 
um, it leads to this sense of adventure that I just have. And so I just cannot um, do the same thing over and over again. So if you sort of give me a simple single task that I have to do every day, I just could not do it. I'd basically kill someone if you told me to do that. Um, and so I've always, <laughs> uh, I've always had this focus on, on going from zero to one. I'm just not very good at the one to hundred. So the repeatability piece, I just can't do it. But if you're trying to tell me, build something from scratch, create new processes, try and rethink uh, things, that's, that's the perfect uh, thing for me. So those are the three things, curiosity, bias for action, and sense of adventure. And frankly, venture capital is the one job I found where I can indulge in all three of those things. The uncertainties in venture, um, you know, the people just building their uh, th these revolutionary visions for the world that should be. It's its a perfect place for someone like me who has all of these different passions. And so that's how I sort of have found my niche from a professional standpoint, uh, which is to be a, a venture capitalist. Amazing. So you said you never stop learning. And how how do you think that played into that shift from doing, which is how I'm going to call the positions you had at, at the corporates or in the entrepreneur side to investing, which is much more looking at the world, having frameworks, trying to figure things out. Yeah. Um, I think the, I think it's a, it's a very good question. And, and my answer to that is I haven't really moved away from doing. So I could have been in, an investor at another firm at someone else's firm, in which case I'd probably be learning much more. But because I've actually gone out and built my own firm, my job is equal parts learning, but equal parts building the firm from scratch also. So I haven't really lost touch with that building aspect. So that's the first thing that I would say. Um, the other thing is um, really being a VC, being a good investor, actually any investor, not just private market, but even a public market investor, I think the number one skill that you have to have is an insatiable learning appetite, basically. Um, at least as a VC, every single day you're exposed to new ideas, new products, uh, markets, business models. Uh, and and even if you're a, a, a vertical specialist like me, like I only invest in education and future work, but even for someone like me, I speak to so many founders who are always sharing unique, unheard of insights and perspectives on, on the very same spaces. So you're still learning in every single conversation, you're learning something new. Um, and, and the best part about being a VC is your job really, your number one job is to synthesize information from all of these different sources and create a macro singular narrative for the world. And so I'm always in data collection mode. Like literally every conversation I'm having with someone, I am just trying to collect data on how they perceive the world within this framework of how it affects education and, and work and, and how that's going to change. So I'm just always trying to collect these, these varied perspectives to try and create this single threaded narrative, uh, which is what I love about, about the job. I mean, that, that's what is great about being a VC. So, I mean, really wearing two hats because it is, it is your firm. So you're just as much the entrepreneur as anyone exactly. else who's building a firm. Yep. Um, but, it, but it's also, it's also synthesizing the data, making that macro worldview, and then 
investing based on those decisions. Absolutely. And that's, um, I think that just to build on that, I guess what I will say is if in the simplest way, uh, I would divide the kind of learning that a VC does into two pieces. One is the macro learning and then there's the micro learning. And the macro learning we've already just talked about, which is where is the puck headed? What is, how is the world changing? What are the problems that we need to solve to move us into the next chapter of civilization? And then there is the micro learning, which is digging into each individual business that come, comes across your table, uh, gauging whether it works, why it works or why it doesn't work. And, and how does it fit into this macro view that you've created for yourself or this, this macro narrative that you've created for yourself? Does this company that you're evaluating, will it survive for the next 10 years and will it become a crucial part of the world that is being built today? So you're always trying to learn um, and form a, a thesis view around both from a, from a 30,000 foot perspective as well as a ground level. So maybe let's break that down into two. I mean, you've already broken it down, but let's kind of zoom in on each of those because there's sure. the macro learning and the micro learning. And how do you think those are different in terms of what you actually do or how your brain is working in terms of, at least from what I can imagine, figuring out a large thesis takes one kind of discipline or research process. Whereas when you're diving deeper into a specific company and trying to understand their, you know, their micro drivers, that would be a very different learning process. Oh, absolutely. I mean, very, very obviously one of them is more tangible than the other. So when I'm, when we're talking about micro learning, where I'm looking at each individual business, I'm looking at their unit economics. I'm looking at the product they've built, the service they're providing, the customer experience. That's very tangible. Like I can, if I go through the process, I can figure out all of the answers, but it's the, the, the macro bit, which is, there's just so many unknowns. I don't know where the world is headed. So it's, it's so intangible in that sense where you're just trying to predict and predictions have assumptions and variables. And so you can't really say this is exactly what will happen. But when I'm digging into a company, I can look at it and say, okay, if if what they're selling costs this much, then you know X amount it costs, Y amount we sell it at, therefore we'll we'll make um, Y minus X profit. But that is that is so specific. Um, so it, it it's very factual when you're looking at that individual company. But it's it's they're just complete uncertainties when you're thinking about it from from the perspective of what's happening in the in the broader world and, and where uh, the world is headed over the next decade and that's the biggest difference so that's that that impacts how you're learning about both of those things what's interesting is instinctively i had the complete opposite um, approach which would Already. be yeah which would be yeah, I mean, I guess we know where the world is going in five to 10 years, right? There are these large macro trends. There will be autonomous cars to some extent. There will be more renewable energy. We're talking about the future of work in ed tech. You know, there, I mean, COVID also has changed a lot of things, but it, there, there are these general narratives and consensus out there. Mm. Whether I could then go to a company and say, aha, you, this company, they will be the ones to, to figure it out. I think that would be much, much harder. So I think it's very interesting that you bring that up and, 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 and your view and perspective is also extremely illuminating. But I think 
Um, the difference is when I think about a company, I sort of think about it one layer below where you're starting your evaluation. You're starting your evaluation by saying, how does this company fit into the worldview? And can it actually deliver on the expectations? I, when I'm trying to evaluate a company, that step is actually the absolute last thing that I'm thinking about. The first set of pieces that I'm trying to evaluate is whether the business even works. Like, this, is this even sustainable? <laughs> okay. All right. So when the, once I've evaluated that, once I've figured out that, yes, this business can make money, that's when I add in the next layer, which is how does this fit in with our view of the future? So I think I'm, I'm sort of delineating it, the micro and the macro learning at that point where I think you're sort of adding one layer um, from the macro to the micro. So that, I think that's the difference between how you and I are viewing this. Um, but what you're saying is also correct. Uh, there are obviously lots of uncertainties on the company level, but I just, I mean, I don't know. I, it, the way that I think about it is in the, from the macro perspective, yes, there are, there are directional signals for where the world is headed, but there is no way to know exactly what will happen and how the world will develop because, I mean, frankly, people have been saying we'll have auto autonomous cars like in 2020. Um, and, and obviously we're not even close, like not even close. It's probably gonna take another decade before we even have those things. So it's directionally, I know that that is gonna happen, but when is it gonna happen? I don't know. So should I be investing in uh, autonomous vehicles today or should I be investing five years later where I know that I'll get a better return? Almost a short return, maybe that's the the right phrase to use. Um, so that's, I guess that's that's where I'm trying to uh, differentiate between macro learning and micro learning. Right. And how how do you think learning from mistakes plays into that? So let's say you get it wrong or you get it right. Um, learning from mistakes or learning from successes when that learning cycle is so long. <laughs> especially in venture because yeah. everyone who invested in autonomous cars, I think in, in 2014 or 15 in general, yeah, they were expecting things to play out by now. And all of a sudden it's much, much yeah. longer. Um, <laughs> frankly, I've made so many mistakes in my career that I'm still learning myself <laughs> how to learn from mistakes. <laughs> So I probably don't have the absolute correct answer to this. But what I will say is, uh, especially from, from a venture perspective, uh, there are two things that I've sort of realized. One is um, reflection really is the key to learning, to any kind of learning, frankly, but also like learning from mistakes. If, unless you actually reflect on the decision process and the results uh, and you do that regularly, um, if you do, if you don't do that reflection, you're actually never going to learn and you're never going to grow. So, I think the um, the biggest change for me, and I was one of those. I mean, I've already said like I have a bias for action, so I never really stop to think and and reflect and introspect. Uh, but I think what has changed in the last couple of years uh, is that I've tried to build more time for reflection into my day, into my week, so that I can pause and think about what has happened and, and what I could have done differently to, to arrive at a different result, uh, both from a short-term as well as a long-term perspective, right? So that that's one big learning for me is, is just make time for reflection. Um, and the second big learning for me is always um, 
put the process over the result, right? So value the process more than, than the ultimate result because as you also said, in this long cycle, uh, that is venture capital, which is usually about eight to 10 years before you even know if this company will work. Um, you have no clue what the result will be and whether it will be favorable enough or not. So the only way to to make sure that it works for you in the long run is to focus on the process. And in fact, when I was thinking about um, this question of yours, I was thinking about the book, Thinking in Bets, uh, which is Annie Duke's book. Um, was, really I seminal I was just about book. to say that. Right. That what you're seminal. saying reminds me of, of thinking in bets. Exactly. So seminal book by, by Annie Duke, I think. Um, I have to admit the first half is a bit dragged, but but generally I really like the book because it really talks about this phenomenon of, of resulting, where when you have a good result, you immediately think that your decision process was right. Every decision you made leading up to that result was correct. But what you forget is there is so much variability in terms of luck that leads to that result. So, so resulting is is the worst thing that you can do. So go back and think about the process. How did you make that decision? And, and that's the process that you should be improving and iterating on regularly. Um, and which is exactly what I've tried to do um, at my end is what is our decision-making process? What are the things that we're looking at? What are the, the questions we're asking? What are the, um, you know, the criteria that we are um, evaluating all of our companies against uh, and then that's what we're trying to focus more on and and again which is this is why I said at the very beginning I'm still making mistakes I'm still learning how to learn from them and frankly we won't know until another five years whether any of the decisions I've made were actually good decisions so maybe you and I should set a time for five years from now to go back and revisit <laughs> my decisions and see if they were good enough and then what learning I had from them yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the first learnings that uh, that we really hit home working on Alp is that the process is the only thing you right. can trust because we get things wrong every day, mm -hmm. uh, multiple times. Um, everything from features that we think will be successful or, you know, copy that we think will be successful, all kinds of different things. And more often than not, and when I say more often than not, I probably mean like 80-20, right. we were wrong. And the only thing that we can make sure that we're moving in the right direction is making sure that the process is right and the checks and balances right. and that if we're wrong, that we're, we're fixing it and all kinds of things like that. So it's really making sure that the process is right is the only thing that you can get Absolutely. done. Absolutely. So there's um, there is one other uh, book that I would recommend for your listeners, Yosh, um, and maybe side note, like you should probably put down the the Amazon links for these books. One is Annie Duke's uh, Thinking in Bets. The other is this book um, called Working Backwards, which is a book that was released by two ex Amazonian employees, um, ex Amazon employees who have written about the very many processes within. Amazon that lead to um, product launches or uh, even just evaluating their performance uh, on, a, on a monthly basis. And, and I think some of those processes are absolutely spot on when they're saying follow the process, not the decision, not the result, basically. So there is this one particular um, 
process that they have, which is which is writing a PR FAQ. I don't know if, if you sort of I don't know if you've read the book, but have you saw have you seen and heard of the PR FAQ process that they have? Yeah, this is Amazon's where you come into the meeting with the PR that will be exactly. released at the end of the day. Yeah. 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 So, so the process is, is that you, you're supposed to be working backwards. That's the process. The process is what is the customer experience that you're trying to deliver and then try and build to that rather than start from scratch um, and say, I'm going to, you know, build this mountain over a molehill, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to think of what the, uh, the end result will be. And so that, particular piece but generally the entire book working backwards i think is a is is a great uh, read for anyone who's thinking about how to build the right processes without worrying about the final results right and i i like how Am, how amazon does that in their work culture because it really forces you to think about the you know start with the end in mind absolutely and that really changes how you start out yep yep there are lots of there are lots of very good processes i mean there's there's the working backwards the pr faq that we just talked about there's also uh, the single threaded um leadership structure that they build what that means is that every single uh, major project they try and remove all of the hierarchies such that the person who is directly responsible for the project is reporting directly to the CEO, it used to be Jeff Bezos, now it's going to be Andy Jassy. But the idea is that that person, there are no intermediaries between the final decision maker, the CEO, and the project leader. And and the more transparency that you can create between those two folks, the more alignment you can create between the vision that the CEO has and the execution that the project leader is responsible for. There's just so many of these different processes. And so, yeah, I'm a I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the book. I haven't finished it just yet. Probably could take me another couple of days to do that, but uh, definite recommendation to anybody who's, who's looking to learn more. All right, adding it to my reading list. Um, you said before about reflection, and I wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit more, especially if there's a process that you have for reflection, because reflection can be very amorphous and it can be very structured and it very much depends on who you are and, and what you're reflecting about. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, caveat, like I said, I'm still learning how to do it better myself, uh, but credit where it's due. There was a, a my, my boss at the previous firm, uh, Henry Tan, he actually instilled in me this idea of taking a break every couple of months where you step away from the day-to-day -day work to just think about and reflect on what has happened in the last whatever time period you're taking the break after and how you can learn from that and change things for the next set of time periods. So in my previous firm, like for example, we used to do this once every week, uh, once every uh, year. Once every year, we would take one entire week off where all we would do is just sit down and talk about everything that has happened in the last 51 weeks. And we talk about the investment decisions we've made, the special projects we've built, um, the companies that we came close to investing but didn't invest, the companies we wanted to invest in but, didn't, but missed out on. And as you're going through that list of 
all of the happenings of the last 51 weeks, you're also trying to jot down one or two learnings from each of those experiences. So in my, uh, at the previous firm, which I'm referring to, where, where I learned this process, uh, we used to have this uh, huge Dropbox paper note, which was just filled with uh, notes on every single decision we've ever made. And so I'm, I'm trying to learn from, from that process and bring it forward into my new firm here at 27B. And I've, I've started doing this on a six monthly basis. So every six months, I sit down, take one week out, and, and again, do the same process, the same exercise where I'm writing down all of the decisions we've made, investment decision, projects, um, you know, spending, decision of spending your time on a particular um, activity, and just what are my learnings from that? And how should I change my behavior going forward? Or how should I improve my process going forward? So far it's worked, but I've also only done what, three of these. Um, so I'll, again, something we'll have to touch base again in a, in a couple of months and a couple of quarters to see if, if it's working out for me in the long run. Hmm. We'll, we'll add it to our five-year check-in. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we should, yeah, <laughs> we should. Yeah. So as you were giving, as you were describing that, I was thinking about how being a, uh, being an investor in the future of work and in education, how that might impact the, basically how you work at 27V. Uh, so a bit of a meta question, like, how do you think kind of being at the forefront of all of these tools, technologies, um, thought processes, how do you think that actually impacts how you're setting up your own work environment, your own learning environment, and your own investing environment? The funny thing is, I think it's actually the other way around. How I learn and how I work is defining the companies that I'm investing in. And the reason I say that is mm. because I, when I was in school, I already said this to you, I, I couldn't sit still, which means that I was always bored when I was in classes. And so I was always looking for, for excuses to, to get out of the class and, and um, you know, participate in theater or organize events and, and go for debating competitions or whatever else. Um, and I learned by doing. I learned by experiencing these things. I learned from my peers. And so all of the educational investments that we're making are actually outside of the classroom. They're impacting young adults and children outside of the classroom. Um, classic example, I mean, look at Alp Audio. It's meant for, for lifelong learners. It's also meant for learners, just, just in general. I mean, a 14-year-old who's in school but is bored with the content that they're receiving could just as easily go to Alp Audio, pick up any of the courses and supplement their learning outside of the classroom. So all of the investments that we made in the education space in particular are based off of my own experiences and, and what I think is the best way to learn. Whether that is correct or not in the long run, we'll, I don't know right now, we'll see. But at least the way that I think most people learn is different. Um, from the conventional way of learning. And so I'm always investing in and looking for companies in experiential learning, peer learning, social learning, immersive learning, uh, anything outside of the class, basically. And the same stands true for, for our future work investments. I mean, look at the stuff that we've invested in. Um, there are uh, 
creator tools. There are um, tools for, for coaching. There are tools for professional development. All of that is stuff that I would have loved access to uh, when I was sort of in the early age uh, stages of my career. But um, I think that that is what is going to make a difference for the next generation of workers, which is why we're investing in those. So yeah, my answer to your question is, is it's not um, what I'm investing in that is impacting how I work and learn. It's actually how I work and learn is impacting what I invest in. Interesting. I mean, you're a very big notion and productivity person yourself, like very calendar oriented templates. Yes. So it's interesting. That's, that's impacting kind of the macro view, the things that come naturally or more naturally to you. And that's also, that's impacting your investing. Oh, 100%. I mean, again, I'll take the Alp example. I, um, I'm, a, I'm a runner, so I, I love going out for long runs. Um, and in any given week, I'm probably listening to 15 to 20 hours worth of a podcast content, uh, audio content, uh, 2x. But um, it, it's it's been such a huge um, part of my development and learning over the last six, seven years, um, being able to listen to all of this um content and, and synthesize it while I'm out doing this physical activity where I don't need to concentrate on anything else other than the content that is playing in my in my head. Um, so, I mean, I, really, the reason I invested in Alp was because I wanted access to that content myself when I was going <laughs> for a run. So that's 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 what drove me to it. Um, and, and similarly, on the work side, uh, there's a company that we've recently invested in called, called Debrief. Uh, we haven't really gone public with the investment, but well, I guess this is me going public with the investment. But uh, <laughs> breaking news reveal, live on Alpodio. Yeah, I know. Um, with this company called Debrief that we just invested in, um, they're building the doc send for video. They're building this platform which helps you uh, communicate asynchronously using video, uh, not only screen recordings, but also your, your own um, personal camera videos. And, and I realized that, and I've actually been helping them with a lot of the product development going forward. Uh, and I realized one of the big use cases that they were looking at is when people are on Zoom calls, they try and record them and then transcribe them for um, recording purposes, which I do all the time, actually. I have so many zaps that are trying to accomplish all of these um, different productivity things. Um, and Debrief was, doing, was solving the exact problem and combining so many different features into one tool, I just felt like this is the perfect solution to my personal problem. So it's probably the solution to a lot of people's problems, which is why we ended up investing. Very cool. So do you think being focused on those areas is an advantage in the investing world? Or do you think actually having a broader macro view, being able to synthesize different you know, bringing something in from dom domains that are completely unrelated into, you know, a specific company. Well, Basically deep versus breadth. Right. Well, I'm, I'm obviously a breadth of a depth person, personally, right? Um, <laughs> so so I, have, I, have, I have a bias towards that, but I'd say it's a, it's a horses for courses thing in a way, right? I mean, different jobs, different kinds of work demand different levels of knowledge. Um, 
think about it from the company's perspective. The the CEO of a company should have breadth of knowledge because they're managing multiple um, roles, they're managing multiple teams across functions. But if you're the CTO of a company, you really should have depth of knowledge because all you're focused on is the technology and you have to ensure that that works uh, in the best way possible. So I think really depends on what kind of work you're doing, um, whether you value breadth over depth of knowledge. Right. Even though I would say future of work, future of education, it sounds narrow, but really it's very, very, very wide. Oh yeah, most definitely. I mean, there are just so many different manifestations of those two sectors. It's um, like I've had to even narrow my thesis even further within education and within future of work. We've got exclusionary spaces within those two verticals. So um, there's a there's a lot of ground to cover. Right. And just going back to something you said way in the beginning, which was that 27V is your own your own firm, your own fund. What do you think the differences are when you're running that on your own versus having a multiple partner system? Because in, in venture, most firms are built around having a few partners, um, yeah. you know, equal, equal weighting basically in the decision-making process. Whereas here, there are less of checks and balances. Yep. Um, well, one thing I will correct though, Yosh, is, is not everybody, not every firm has an equal weighted balance across partners. Some firms, especially right, those right. with long storied histories, have some partners that have higher weight or greater weighting to their decisions uh, and veto powers and that kind of stuff. So I think it's not always an equal um, playing field uh, for, for, all, for everyone in, in that sort of structure. I think the- Agreed, agreed. Um, there are both, as with anything, it's a double-edged sword. There are advantages and disadvantages to being a solo GP. The advantage, of course, is if I'm convinced, the entire firm is convinced, and we are putting all of our efforts into that company that we've we've invested in. Whereas with multiple partner firms, the fear always is you have four partners. One of them is convinced the other isn't. After you invest, not everybody's really pulling their weight. Not everybody's pushing the company forward in this with the same enthusiasm. And so that's that's a huge disservice to the company that they've invested in. And I never wanted that situation to ever be present in a firm that I was building. So which is why I chose the, the solo GP route, because I know that if I'm convinced, I'm convinced. I don't have to go out and ask anybody else for permission. I will just put all of my effort behind the company that we invested in. Uh, that's a huge advantage. Another advantage is, is being able to do this quickly. Um, I don't have any IC, I mean, well, there is an IC, but the IC is one person I see and that's me. Um, so it's, it's just easier to make these decisions. It's faster for us to make these decisions. You, as a founder, you don't have to go around pitching the entire partnership. You don't have to go around pitching the associate, then the principal, then the partner, and then the other partners. That kind of process just doesn't exist. It's just me. You talk to me three times, four times, uh, and I'll give you an answer. And so it's faster, it's it's a more streamlined process because it's a solo GP firm. Um, the downsides of being a solo GP firm, of course, are time constraints. There's only so many hours in the day for me to cover 
the ground that I'm trying to cover, which is a huge problem for me every single day. I'm, I'm struggling and bumping against the um, the 12 hour mark every single day uh, in terms of work time. Um, but I think the the other problem, of course, is um, and and I think you and I have you and I have talked about this in the past, which is as a solo GP, um, you have a lot of individual biases that can influence your decision. Uh, you don't have anybody who is checking you on a regular basis when you make those decisions. So um, you might be making suboptimal decisions in some of these cases. You may fall in love with a particular founder and, and idea so much that you sort of ignore all of the other warning flags and, and red flags. And, and that is, of course, not conducive to building a great firm. You don't want to be making those kinds of good mistakes. Um, the way that I've, I've tried to sort of solve for that is by cultivating an inner circle that I can reach out to every time I get close to making a decision. Um, one, of course, one portion of that population is, of course, my uh, our portfolio founders. I mean, I, I reach out to all of you. Every time I come close to a portfolio investment, I ask all of you for your views which is perfect because you're all in the industry. You're the closest years to the ground that I have. Uh, and so if I ask you for feedback, you'll give me exactly what is happening with your customers, with your markets, with your spaces. So that's that's perfect for me. So I ask every single investment that I've made. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I'd say about 80% of every investment that we've made, 80% of the investments we've made, I've asked the the current founders for their feedback on the founders, on the team, on the idea, on the on the business, uh, the model, and everything else, and that's great feedback for me. Uh, that's extremely valuable and, and insightful for us to use in the decision making process. The other thing is we've got these advisors, we've got our LPs, our investors, and, and all of the other investors that we co-invest with. Um, and I have standing calls with some of them. I have one-off calls with some of them to try and understand what their view on a particular space is. Um, as an example, by the way, you and I have a common friend, Enrico, over at Zanichelli Ventures. Uh, he and I have like a standing monthly check-in. We just did it yesterday, in fact, where we're talking about the deals that he's looking at, deals I'm looking at, what he's finding interesting, what I find interesting, uh, and any overlaps, any ways for us to um, sort of co-invest and, and work together and collaborate. And it's conversations like these that are so useful um, to ensure that you you have a check against your own biases and, and against um, just suboptimal decision-making on your part. And this also helps when you're focused on a specific sector. Oh, definitely. Because, I mean, it's it's right. so much easier. It's so much easier because there's, there's a smaller universe of people that you need to stay in touch with. If I was a generalist, I'd have to basically be, uh, I'd have to have close relationships with like a thousand people. Right now I can probably do it with a hundred. <laughs> Right. And, and I think that really fits in with, with being focused on a sector and, and that way you don't have to stay in touch with a thousand people on a monthly yeah. basis with just 12 hours a day. Exactly. And it, it, I mean, the other thing, the other advantage of being focused on a specific sector is all of your activities become self-reinforcing circles. All of the learning that you're doing, because you're learning about a, a specific 
there's there's only so much information you can gather about education, but the more information you gather about education, you form a more nuanced uh, and a better evolved understanding of the space. So it's really good if you can actually focus on a certain vertical because, like I said, it's it's reinforcing your learning process every single time. Amazing. Well, Atin, thanks so much. This has been amazing. Um, if people want to stay up to date with what you're doing, what you're thinking about, where can people find you? Oh, the easiest is Twitter. I am... I have a 27-minute timer on my Twitter for the day, but it is still—it's—it's it's probably the one app that I—I I turn off the timer way too often. Um, so, so Twitter is the best way to get in touch. It's—it's it's just my last name followed by first name. Um, it's Patra Thin at the rate, and you just find me there. And uh, DMs are open. Always happy to chat with people.